to Maximus Live episode 48. If you are joining us for the first time, my name is Dr. Cam Sapa. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and psychiatry professor, and also the CEO of Maximus. We are a consumer telemedicine company that provides prescription health and hormone optimization to men. You can check us out at MaximusTribe.com, and they are the sponsor of this podcast. Um, they... Uh, just setting up our social media here. Uh, so if you're interested, uh, check us out at MaximusTribe.com. Um, we provide a doctor-prescribed protocol that includes at-home lab testing to test your testosterone uh, levels. And uh, we put people on a protocol that in involves a doctor-prescribed oral medication and supplements in addition to health coaching to help you optimize your diet, exercise, sleep, and focus. And use that to uh, double people's testosterone levels on average, which we verify through third-party lab testing after 30 days. Um, we are currently operational in California and Florida, so if you're in those two states, check us out, uh, and we will soon be in 13 uh, more states. So as a result of the um, company, we host a weekly live call-in radio show, so shout out to everyone who's listening to us on Clubhouse right now, Instagram Live, Discord, and YouTube Live. Um, and I take live questions from the audience about health and hormone optimization. Um, and happy to coach anyone through any particular questions or issues that they have. Um, I like to start each week with what I call the weekly unpopular opinion, where I share a little bit of contrarian uh, uh, tactics based on science to help you optimize your health. So uh, this week's um, unpopular opinion is that uh, dopamine fasting uh, is actually tremendously helpful for uh, cortisol. Um, and so um, if you're not familiar, I popularized dopamine fasting about two years ago. It was all over uh, the mainstream media, New York Times, BBC, GQL. Um, but there was a lot of confusion about what it actually is because the media doesn't like to portray things accurately. So dopamine fasting is basically a practice that's rooted in evidence-based Treatments like CBT, you may be familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the gold standard psychotherapy. Um, and the principle behind it is that there's a lot of essentially internet and social media addiction going on in addition to other behavioral addictions. So addictions don't just apply to alcohol and substances, but they can apply to internet use, gaming, pornography, shopping, gambling, and thrill seeking. So anything that's a behavior uh, that can be particularly addictive, uh, can also be just as problematic um, as drug use. Um, and so as a result of that, um, it's hard to stay away from certain behaviors. Obviously, for example, we need to eat, so you can't abstain from it altogether. But there are practices, for instance, like intermittent fasting, which help people if they're particularly like binge eaters or they're constantly snacking and grazing to regulate their eating within distinct certain periods of time so that they're not just eating 24 seven. Similarly, dopamine fasting operates under a very similar principle that we probably should not be picking up our phone hundreds of times a day if, uh, if you have a problematic issue with uh, screen time or social media overuse. Now, obviously social media can be beneficial. We're literally sitting on social media right now because we're using it to educate ourselves, learn, grow, and connect with other people. But as we say in pharmacology, the dose makes the poison, meaning more is not always better. So, uh, you know, my kind of thesis is that social media almost has a hormetic effect, meaning that in small calculated dosages, if you're especially consuming the right content from the right people, it can obviously be very beneficial for your social life and for your education. However, too much, obviously, especially consuming a lot of clickbait garbage uh, is not going to be beneficial to your health. The interesting thing is now there's an emerging amount of literature that's talking about what's the physiological and psychological effects of social media use. So last week in last week's radio show, we talked a lot about cortisol. Cortisol is the stress hormone. And I talked about two specific strategies, one behavioral in terms of using sun, scro uh, st sun strolling in the morning, taking a 10 minute walk in the sunshine right when you get up. And the second I talked about a nutrient called phosphatidylserine. If you're interested in both of those things, check out last week's show. We actually host it live. Uh, we host the, and record the live shows on YouTube. You can check out our YouTube channel at Maximus Tribe if you type that into YouTube. But this week I actually wanna talk about cortisol 
and social media. So there is an interesting uh, growing body of literature, I would say, that's looking at the association of social media use and cortisol. So as uh, a reminder, sort of cortisol is the stress hormone that's associated with psychological stress and is physiologically released by the HPA axis uh, in response to psychological stress. Um, there's a couple studies that have been done, a few of which I'll highlight today, that basically look at the association between these two phenomena. The first was a study that was actually done in uh, Malaysia uh, looking at uh, university students and how they use social media. The interesting thing was just the preponderance of social media use. So they studied the student body, um, they randomly sampled some folks, and basically found that 11% of students spend less than an hour a day on social media, 40.2% use it between two to four hours a day, and 46.4% use social media more than four hours a day. Um, and then 2% of people were kind of in an other category. But it's kind of mind-blowing that essentially, uh, you know, 86.6% of people are using it for two to uh, uh, four plus hours a day, and then there's almost half of the people are using it for over four hours a day. Now, if you think about it in terms of how much actually free time that you have during the day, if you're using it for four plus hours, you're essentially taking up all of your free time on social media. And so this is a very interesting phenomenon to me as a clinical psychologist because it makes me beg the question, what is the effect of spending basically all of your free time uh, on social media? And it really comes uh, top of mind, especially because of all the recent announcements that have been happening regarding the so-called metaverse. So if you've been paying attention to what's been happening, Facebook, well, obviously the largest social media company in existence, has actually completely rebranded itself to uh, Meta, its new name. And if you've seen sort of Mark Zuckerberg's presentations around it, um, they have uh, talked about how they're sort of investing in the metaverse. So. What is this concept of the massive metaverse? So if you've seen some of Mark Zuckerberg's videos, he's talking about sort of this almost like VR reality because Facebook owns Oculus and there may be a world in which you put on a VR headset like the Oculus and kind of get to hang out with your friends in an alternative reality that kind of looks like your house but cooler and you can put on avatars, different clothing and maybe even all anonymous personas. You could walk around and look like a bear if that's what you want to do. Now, a lot of people sat there and kind of mocked this and said, oh, this is kind of crazy. I'll never wear a headset or a VR set and I don't want to be living in an alternative universe. But I actually, this is my contrarian thesis. The metaverse already exists. Like right now, we are sitting in a metaverse right now. The hundreds of people who are listening right now on Club Clubhouse, we're not sitting together in an auditorium, which would be like the traditional thing. I would put up posters, I'd invite people in the local LA community to come hear me give a talk, and you all would be sitting in an audience, maybe snacking on some drinks uh, and hearing me and you know having a little post-talk uh, chat. Now we can obviously essentially do the same thing on Clubhouse, YouTube, Instagram, Discord, all these social media channels in the so-called metaverse. Now, we, maybe we haven't done it to a point where you can sort of see me, although actually on Instagram Live, you can see my face, same thing with Discord. Um, and likewise, I can literally bring people up on the stage and see them as well. So I would actually argue we're already living in a metaverse, but here's the interesting thing about it. For a lot of people, uh, the way that they consume social media is essentially like an alternative reality in the sense that when we have downtime, particularly when we're bored, like I was talking to actually like a, a you know, a very prominent investor about how he uses Twitter because he's kind of one of these Twitter power users and was talking about he uses it basically whenever he has downtime, whenever he's waiting for a meeting to start, whenever he's sitting in a, a cab or an Uber uh, waiting to get to someplace, if he's sitting there during dinner waiting for an appetizer to come, that's when he uses it. And that's how he kind of controls his use to prevent overuse. But basically, if you think about it, it's almost like the webbing of our daily life in that there's almost no downtime. There's almost no boredom that exists anymore. If you particularly are a, a social media power user, you're kind of using it all throughout the day in periods of time when things are kind of ebbing and flowing. And so if you think about it, basically you're living in two different realities. You're living obviously in the real world, but then whenever you're kind of getting bored, angry, lonely, tired, stressed, etc., and you don't like the reality that you live in, you basically switch to an alternative reality, which is whether it's Clubhouse, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, your social media of choice is basically your alternative reality of choice. 
because it's more entertaining or more interesting to live in that alternative reality than to live in the one that we currently exist. Now there's obviously a blending of the two because you can talk to obviously friends, family, et cetera, that obviously exists in real life. Uh, and so it's kind of a blending of the two worlds, but it also gives you the opportunity to talk to people that you may not know in real life as, uh, at all or may not have access to obviously. Um, and so that's why I actually think the metaverse already exists it's all, all it's happening is it's getting upgraded to a higher definition or a higher fidelity version of it with better technology. So it's not just voice, it's not just high def video, it may actually be 3D interaction and, and it'll get so good that it'll be hard to distinguish that you know probably in a few years when I'm hosting this clubhouse, it will feel like we'll all, we're all together sitting in an auditorium um, and hanging out and having sort of like a, a in-person experience. So I, I wouldn't bet against sort of Facebook or other companies that are investing in this metaverse because all they're doing is upgrading something that in my opinion already exists. Now, the danger of this to me though as a psychologist is, as I mentioned, uh, we're spending an inordinate amount of time in this alternative reality, right? If college students are spending over four hours a day uh, right, and this is not even in the US, as like I said, the study was done in Malaysia, what is the effect um, of this. Now, there are studies that are showing that uh, the effect of this is that the students who are using social media more have higher cortisol levels. They have higher stress levels uh, compared to people who use it for fewer, like the one to two hour uh, a day range. There's also some interesting um, studies that have tried to use sort of lab stressors to evaluate the effect of uh, social media on stress. So when they put people through what's called a, a stress task, they bring people into a laboratory, they put them through a stressor by, for instance, making them give a public speech in front of people, which stresses most people out. Um, and then they have them do one of two things. They either have them read quietly, right? If you think about it, that's kind of the old school thing we used to do when we used to sit in a waiting room when we were bored at the dentist's office, or they had them log into their own Facebook profiles and then scroll. So here's the interesting thing. When people logged onto Facebook after doing a stressful task, and if you think about it, that's how people like to use social media. They, they feel bad, they feel a negative emotion, they feel psychological stress, and then they engage in social media in order to hyper-focus and feel better. So and if you read my dopamine fasting article, I talk about this as double reinforcement. Double reinforcement being uh, it uh, takes away the negative feelings uh, and that's why it's reinforcing. And it also induces positive feelings because we get to see, you know, cute pictures of dogs on Facebook or other things that we really like. And that's why it's doubly addicting because it takes away the pain and also introduces pleasure. Now, when they have people do this after a stressful task in order to numb themselves, right, they find that actually their cortisol persists longer than if they were just sitting and reading quietly. So it basically impairs recovery from a stressful task in which cortisol should be going down, but it remains elevated over time. And so basically, it, this study very cleverly showed that when we use uh, Facebook and other social media in an impulsive manner, right, meaning that we pull it out and we use it to numb or avoid negative emotions, it elevates and maintains our cortisol levels when we engage in, uh, after we engage in a stressful task in real life. And so that's really the basis of dopamine fasting. It's not saying that social media is evil. Obviously, like I said, we're using it right now, but using it in an impulsive fashion in order to avoid negative feeling, that's the danger. Because when we do that, it actually impairs recovery. All it's doing is sort of, we're avoiding actually the negative feeling, we're actually avoiding sort of the stress uh, by almost like I said, going into an alternative reality or metaverse uh, that because we don't like sitting in this reality and sitting with our stress. While if we actually did that in a way that was mindful, sitting and reading quietly, practicing meditation or breathing, your stress would actually recover much quicker and much more naturally than if we avoided it off into this sort of Facebook metaverse. So. Uh, that's kind of my two cents um, on the, you know, this whole phenomenon of social media overuse. So my point with dopamine fasting is it's not that we, sh we shouldn't use the internet and social media. We obviously can and shouldn't, like I said, in small hormetic doses, dosages, it should be beneficial. But what I would suggest is that it's not done in an impulsive or emotional manner. It, the best way to do it is a scheduled manner. 
The difference being that when you pull out your phone when you're stressed, like I said, it'll maintain your cortisol levels. But when you do it in a scheduled fashion, so let's say for instance, your lunch break is from noon to one, and you say, okay, after I eat lunch from 12 to 12.30, from 12.30 to one o'clock, I'll use my social media. 30 minutes, it's scheduled, it's at the same time every day, it's not in response to an emotional stressor. That's much less likely to be addictive because it's on a time block it's not triggered by an emotional response. And like I said, when it's triggered by an emotional response, then it's reinforced. And when it's reinforced, that's when it becomes addictive. So that's kind of the basis of dopamine fasting. It's just like intermittent fasting, which you schedule your meals at you know, 12 o'clock, 6 o'clock, etc. You should really schedule your social media use to be the same thing. That's why we actually try to practice what we preach. We host this radio show at the same exact time Every single week, barring you know some other uh, holiday or phenomenon going on, you can hear me basically every single Thursday, six o'clock Pacific time. It's very re regular, reliable. You're not pulling out your phone and using Clubhouse whenever you're bored, angry, lonely, tired, stressed, etc. So that's the proper way to use it. And the other thing that's um, so that's called dopamine feasting, which is scheduling a time to use sort of social media. The, the other part of it is dopamine fasting, which is where you block out periods of time in which you don't use social media. Now, that can be uh, quite variable in terms of how much time you want to block. But the simplest way to get started, like the lowest hanging fruit that I recommend, and I actually talked about this on Twitter the other day, is to try to block out the first and the last hour of every day. Meaning that when you get up, do not touch your phone for the first hour of the day. Try to avoid screens if you can. And then same thing, that last hour of the day, try to avoid screens in terms of using your phone or your laptop. I've generally find, and I work with clients, especially tech CEOs in Silicon Valley, that their cortisol levels and subjective levels of stress seem to be much lower when they practice this. Because when you avoid screens for the first hour, you can engage in those healthier alternative behaviors like the sun strolling, getting outside, getting sun in your sunlight in your eyes for 10 minutes, doing mindfulness meditation, uh, other sort of healthy uh, health behaviors that you're going to do as an alternative to sitting on your phone until you're rushing and now you got to go to work and you know you haven't engaged in anything that's actually beneficial or healthy. Same thing if you're looking at your bright phone and at, like immediately before bed and then you climb into your bed and try to go to sleep. A lot of people these days unfortunately have trouble falling asleep because they're overusing social media and it's too close to bed. So try to block out at least that last hour before bed, avoid any screens, which obviously avoids any excess sort of blue light that's getting into your eyes, but it also kind of avoids sort of the overstimulation that's associated with social media, allows our minds to sort of calm down and engage in alternative behaviors, whether that's reading, journaling, uh, keeping a gratitude journal, spending uh, you know physical and emotional intimacy with your significant other, etc., much better uses of your time than social media. So, like I said, I'm not anti-social media. Obviously, using it right now, but there's a time, a place, and a dosage that's appropriate for social media, just like any other drug. And I always tell people you should consider social media as a digital drug. It has effects on the brain and the physiology, as we talked about, just like. Uh, pharmaceutical drugs do. And pharmaceutical drugs aren't evil. We actually prescribe them in our program too. But like I said, the dose makes the poison. So you want to be very careful about how much you use. And it's just like half the audience who's listening to this probably consumes coffee or tea. Nothing wrong with coffee or tea. There's not negative effects of consuming, let's say, a cup of coffee in the morning. Uh, it may even have some beneficial health outcomes depending on the type that you consume. But if you're consuming, let's say, four cups of coffee a day, that can obviously uh, result in sort of a, an overstimulation of the adrenal system, and especially if you're consuming it late in the afternoon or evening, cause interference with sleep quality. So the dose makes the poison, the same thing. If you're using less than an hour of social media use, probably okay. Using four or more hours, I can almost guarantee you that it's causing some sort of social or occupational interference, and probably, as the research is starting to emerge, causing elevations in your cortisol or stress levels which are going to be harmful to your psychological well-being and will also impair your testosterone production as well, which is obviously very beneficial as a man for your optimal health and functioning. So that's this week's unpopular opinion is uh, ex excess social media use elevates cortisol or stress. And so you need to dopamine fast and limit it. 
ideally not using it for the first and last hour of every day and otherwise scheduling it during fixed times, like for instance, Thursdays at six o'clock um, so that you can get the most benefit out of it while the minimal amount of sort of damage that's happening psychologically and physiologically. All right, so with that said, I'm gonna take questions for the last 40 minutes. We have a couple that were submitted um, from social media, but I always love live questions, so I'll prioritize that first and foremost. If there's anyone listening in Clubhouse that would like to raise their hand and come up on stage, ask me any questions about nutrition, exercise, sleep, focus, dopamine, fasting, hormones, etc. Happy to do a quick consult or coach you through any questions that you have. Hey, Sri. Hey, Dr. Cameron. How are you? Good, good. How are you? Good, good. So my name is Sri. I had a quick question about um, the nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's uh, pretty much... This is pretty much a, a long-standing debate and which uh, this is a debate that will not end. Um, I have been in rooms uh, in Clubhouse where there is a campaign for going for plant-based diet, mm-hmm. not even uh, vegetarian, but primarily plant-based, uh, avoiding dairy even. Right. And there are rooms where they encourage, no, no, uh, there is a bad rep having red meat and other types of lean meat. You should have meat because uh, you don't have protein. Um, and the uh, folks who are advocating for that have very similar um, designations like uh, like you have. And uh, they're also doctors, MDs, and uh, um, they, they have, they're sharing that opinion. So Right. As the audience listening to these uh, different extreme views in Clubhouse, I was just wondering, uh, is, I mean, is it, what is the truth? Uh, yeah. You know, it, it's such a great question, and, and it's an unfortunate phenomenon that exists in that, you know, if you look at a lot of fields of study, now, there are differences of opinion, right? Like, if you, if you talk to, like, professors of, I don't know, chemistry, uh, I'm sure they'll have slightly different views on things, but there's a pretty strong consensus, I would say, in like the field of chemistry about sort of what is right and what is wrong. Unfortunately, if you look at the field of nutrition, it's a, it's a goddamn mess. I hate to say it, but it's true uh, in the sense that there is very little consensus uh, in the field of nutrition and there's, there's gross disagreement, in fact, about what is right or wrong. Um, which is an unfortunate and terribly confusing to the general public, right? Because to your point, there are people as credentialed as I am who are probably have completely different points of view. And so as a psychologist, particularly a health psychologist that does a lot of nutrition work, what's what's my understanding of what this phenomenon is? So let's talk about this phenomenon and then I'll give you my, my particular view on diets, right? But I think it's more into understanding, uh, beneficial to understand the phenomenon that's going on. And I think the best way to describe it is someone once told me that nutrition is like a religion and you'll never change anyone's mind about it. And I think if you think about it under that lens, it explains so much, right? In the sense of why can't, you know, there's a ton of research on nutrition. Why can't we come to a scientific consensus about what is optimal? And I think it's because it's the same thing. If you asked a bunch of different academics, a bunch of different professors, do they believe in God? right? And which God do they believe in? They would give you totally different answers, right? There's a bunch of atheists. There's a bunch of people who are agnostic. There's a bunch of people who are religious. And even if they are religious, they probably believe in, believe in different gods, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, etc. And that's because it's not really scientific. It's a belief system that's highly influenced by someone's personal background, parental influence, culture, etc. Unfortunately, nutrition is not a science. It's really almost a belief system. Now, there is science to nutrition, but there's essentially a blending of science and belief that's made it very confusing. And I think that's why you have people who are MDs, PhDs that are very smart. They understand how to read the scientific literature, but they're very biased because of their personal belief systems of what they want to be true and they're no longer able to be objective. I'll give you a really concrete example of this. Daryush Mozafarian is the Dean of Nutrition at Tufts University. He's an MD, PhD. I've actually talked to him before. He's a very nice guy, very smart guy, very influential guy in the field of nutrition. 
but they recently put out this sort of like food score calculator where if you put out, where you input different types of food, it will give you a score of their healthiness. But it was routinely mocked, including by myself on uh, Twitter, because it said things like Cheerios and cereals are healthier than, you know, certain produce, meat, butter, etc. Like things that are whole natural foods that have, we've been eating for thousands of years versus like, you know, uh, Cheerios. Um, it, it made essentially zero sense when you actually like put in real foods into the calculator. And obviously people start to get concerned about is this, uh, you know, biased by the food industry who may be funding Tufts and other sorts of things. We unfortunately have had a history of that as well, in which the sugar industry in particular has funded a lot of research to be quite frankly favorable, right? If you go and talk to the people at Coca-Cola, they swear that Coca-Cola is not bad for you. Um, but that's unfortunately the bias that sort of exists. The funny phenomenon, by the way, is we have very little disagreement scientifically about what to feed, let's say, dogs and cats, right? Cats are obligate carnivores, that meaning they can only eat meat, uh, and dogs are essentially hypercarnivorous, meaning that they primarily eat meat, but they co-evolved with us to be able to have uh, amylase, the enzyme that digests starch. And so they can consume a little bit of carbohydrates from like the scrap bread that fell from our table back in the day. Um, but they're still primarily meat eaters. If you in fact let dogs eat whatever they want, you just kind of give them a buffet of food options, they'll essentially naturally eat a ketogenic diet that's hypercarnivorous, meaning has greater than 70% uh, animal-based uh, kind of foods. It's highly likely on the basis of that, given that humans and dogs essentially co-evolved together. Uh, they used to be wolves that kind of evolved into dogs. Um, I think the scientific uh, literature, if you especially look at the anthropological literature, it seems very clear that human beings are hypercarnivorous, meaning that if you look at the majority of hunter-gatherers, of people who are eating sort of traditional diets that are not influenced by the food industry or what Kellogg's breakfast cereals uh, you know, uh, want you to eat, um, the majority of cultures essentially eat a predominantly animal-based diet. I think it's irrefutable, uh, anthropological evidence. And I think anthropological evidence to me is the strongest evidence that we have uh, uh, short of randomized control trials. The problem is in the nutrition field, we can't ethically run randomized control trials because think about this. If you, if you took 1,000 people and you said 500 of you are gonna eat an animal-based diet, 500 of you are gonna eat a plant-based diet and we're gonna go follow you for 20 years and see who dies sooner. Uh, it's kind of ethically questionable to be able to do that. And second, how are you gonna get people to comply with that if you randomly assign them? The people who are vegetarians and you tell them to eat meat, they're not gonna stick with that because they're gonna be unhappy with that. So it's very hard to do that sort of gold standard RCT research in nutrition. So what the nutrition field, including places like Tufts ends up doing is they do what's called associational or epidemiological research. They basically survey people and they survey a thousand people and they say, hey, how much red meat do you eat? And they look at their health markers and they say, well, let's see, do you have diabetes? And they find, oh, people who eat more red meat have higher rates of diabetes. And then they can conclude red meat is bad for you, right? Even though there is zero, zero randomized control trials that show that red meat uh, is causes diabetes, cancer, or any sort of negative health outcomes. The, the thing that matters is the processing of the red meat. If you're eating a bunch of hot dogs uh, and highly processed red meat, that's obviously not great for you. Versus if you're you know, cooking whole steaks yourself uh, using non-refined seed oils, you're cooking it in ghee or things like that, uh, much less likely to be unhealthy for you. So that's essentially the entire bias of the nutrition research is the, uh, this epidemiological or associational research is fundamentally flawed. People are really, really bad at reporting what they ate, their calories are totally off, they're completely forgetful, and they, you know, they, they don't dif differentiate between the types of food. Is it like a processed hot dog they ate at a baseball game or a nice whole grass-fed steak that they cooked for themselves? It does make a difference. So I think in the absence of really good research, and honestly, there is an absence of good research in nutrition, the best thing we can do is to focus on sort of traditional diets. And like I said, the preponderance of evidence from hunter-gatherers is that human beings ancestrally ate uh, predominantly 
uh, animal-based diets. There's also a lot of other research that shows that, for instance, vegetarians have lower testosterone, lower sperm count in men, which if you think about it, your one evolutionary purpose on earth is to reproduce. And so any diet that reduces your fertility and your reproductive function is obviously not optimal for health. I think that's very strong evidence for men that eating a plant-based diet is not optimal for you. And the reason we know this too is we understand the physiology of how testosterone is made. As I mentioned in previous shows, testosterone is ultimately made from cholesterol and dietary cholesterol it predominantly comes from animal-based foods. It comes from butter, comes from fish, comes from shrimp, uh, comes from meat. Um, you're not consuming a lot of cholesterol if you're consuming a plant-based diet. And so you're basically reducing the top of funnel or the precursors, if you will, of your steroidogenesis or the ability to produce your steroidal hormones such as testosterone and cortisol are actually part of that cascade as well. So uh, I think the evidence actually is very clear that animal-based diets are superior. Um, I don't believe in total carnivore diets where you're eating 100% animals. There's also almost no civilizations that eat 100%. Even the Inuits or the Eskimos, uh, so to speak, uh, try to go out of their way, even though there's very little plant life up in the Arctic, to try to consume some plant-based things. Um, and I do think they essentially counterbalance one another in that the consumption of fiber in particular that comes from plant-based foods helps counteract um, some of the acidity of the uh, uh, animal-based uh, foods essentially alkalinizes your diet. Uh, and the fiber also tends to have uh, lipid beneficial effects in terms of lowering triglycerides uh, uh, and serum lipid levels. And so you really should consume both animals and plants. It should be mostly animals. And think of, like the, the animals you should think about as food or the main dish. Plants are essentially the side dish uh, that complements it. Um, and that's really like the traditional way that's been eaten in the majority of civilizations since time immemorial, uh, including the pre-agricultural, pre prior to 5,000 years ago, in which we uh, sort of uh, abandoned hunter-gatherer diets uh, in, in favor of sort of uh, agri uh, agriculture. Um, but that has actually also been associated with a loss of stature, like heights have actually decreased since we uh, moved from sort of hunter-gatherer to more you know, pastoral farming race things, um, cavities uh, have uh, increased dramatically because of the increase in carbohydrates and chewing sort of uh, grains and sugars um, and all kinds of other negative health effects, including you know, jaw size and things like that. And so uh, to me, I think it's very clear. Uh, I mean, this is my opinion and point of view, but I think it's backed by a lot of science that animal-based diets are superior. And you know, it, I think the other key question is what is what is the outcome that you're going for? I think with Maximus and also my point of view is that um, hormonal health is really one of the best markers of your overall health. For men, their testosterone levels, if they're high, it's basically an indication that you're doing everything right. You're sleeping right, you're eating right, uh, you know, your focus is good, you're having good intimate relationships, which also improves testosterone. And so it's kind of like if you, I, I do think it's useful to look at many markers, including cortisol, as we talked about. But if there's only one marker that I could measure to give you a good status of your health, it were honestly for men, it would be testosterone. And so if we use that as sort of our true north metric, I would argue you have to eat animals in order to have maximal testosterone production uh, and look, feel, and perform your best as a man. I don't think there's any strong evidence that anyone could say otherwise that a plant-based diet would be better for testosterone. I know they've made some efforts. PETA, for instance, puts these total propaganda ads that make it seem like plant-based diets are better for libido or erection strength. It's totally not the case, but you know they're very biased and they have a very point, uh, clear point of view. I think if you look at the research and you follow people who are um, more objective, I think it's pretty unequivocal that you should eat both, uh, but lean a little bit more animal. That's my two cents. Sure. Go green. 
you know, environment, climate change, you'll change uh, many things if you if you change your diet, and uh, it's not personal anymore. You're actually disturbing the whole. Of course, yeah, and so it's, they're sort of guilt tripping people and saying, oh, you know, eating meat is bad for the environment. That's not true at all, by the way. Uh, pastoral raised. Uh, pasture-raised animals are actually good for the environment. They regenerate the soil uh, because they fertilize it. Uh, in fact, monocropping soybeans is the worst possible thing for our environment. So this is this is the terrible thing about propaganda, right? They convince people and take advantage of people's empathy, in my opinion, right? There's a lot of women in particular. You see this phenomenon in LA. Probably half the women in LA are eat plant-based diets, uh, Partly because they think it's healthier. Partly though, it's for these environmental reasons. They think they're doing good, right? And they're they're you know good intentioned people, right? Because I'm an I'm the world's biggest environmentalist, right? I grew up backpacking, hiking, camping, and I know the the importance of the you know maintaining our environment. Uh, in fact, I always tell guys that guys should be the number one stewards of environment because the pollution of our oceans and our drinking water is the number one disruptor of our chemicals and our testosterone. So guys should actually care a lot and be the, the biggest advocates of environmentalism. But this this notion that uh, you know uh, plant-based diets are better for the environment versus the way that historically we've been doing it. Historically, right, uh, you know, if you look at literally, most of us are in North America who are listening to this, you know, the Native Americans who've been on this land for far longer than, uh, you know, uh, any sort of uh, uh, us that have been here, uh, primarily consumed buffalo uh, that that from nose to tail they ate all the parts of it uh, and they regenerated essentially all of the grasslands that are in the middle of the U.S. by by virtue of fertilizing it. Now they did eat some plants too, berries that grew in the summer uh, and lots of other plants as well. But the analysis of Native American diets, which I've looked at, where eighty five percent of the calories of Native American diets, traditional Native American diets, are animal based, and only fifteen percent are plant-based. So you can use that as a useful proxy to kind of make that determination for yourself. But also, they're in great health. Uh, Native Americans, actually, back in the 1850s were some of the tallest people in the world. Uh, the average height of a Native American was somewhere around like 5'11", which at that time, which by the way, the average American now, male, is 5'9". So uh, indigenous Native Americans 150 years ago with uh, poor nutrition, so to speak, certainly poor medical care, were taller than the average man nowadays. And, and you know, the average guy back then was probably 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, so they were toweringly tall. And certainly some of the Native American tribes, uh, many of the men were described as being well over six feet tall, uh, eating these primarily buffalo-based essentially diet uh, with perfectly straight teeth. They're not brushing their teeth. They had no fluoride, uh, very little cavities, beautiful straight white teeth. And there's lots of uh, picture documentation of that as well. Um, and so it's very interesting, like I said, anecdotal and anthropological evidence towards that. Uh, but I think, unfortunately, there's so much propaganda, like the all this Netflix documentaries that are clearly vegan propaganda, etc., PETA, etc., are confusing people. Versus when you look at the actual historical record, it's very indisputable about what we ate. Uh, and it's only in the last, you know, couple decades that there's this been this push, uh, essentially about. Uh, plant-based stuff, environmentalism, etc. In my opinion, it's a cult. Uh, absolutely. To me as a psychologist, I'm very sort of hyper aware of cult-like phenomenon. And I think the plant-based vegan community is absolutely a cult uh, that we should be very, very aware of because they, they're not interested in, in science at all. Uh, they essentially will take science that supports their worldview versus, you know, that's not how science is done. You, you should be open to being wrong uh, through new data. Um, versus, like I said, when it's a religion, and you really should think about it as a religion, the plant-based diet thing is absolutely a religion in my point of view. Um, it doesn't matter. They'll do anything to perpetuate their beliefs because, like I said, religions are a belief system. They don't care about science per se. So uh, hopefully uh, that's very helpful. But like I said, um, you got to drown out the garbage uh, and the people who clearly have bias. I don't have a particular bias either way. I'm a scientist. If I became convinced increasingly over time that uh, a different diet in five, 10 years is superior, I will update my points of view. As I have over the last 10 years, I continually consume new research and will continually update my point of view, um, which is what I did, for instance, with ketogenic diets. Ketogenic diets are relatively new uh, in terms of sort of their mainstream popularity, but the increasing literature, for instance, in support of them as a treatment for type two diabetes in particular, I think has become increasingly convincing. So that if you are a type two diabetic or even a type one diabetic, eating a lower carbohydrate diet 
seems to be a, a very helpful way of regulating your blood sugar levels. That was not the popular opinion back then. May still not be, uh, certainly amongst like, I don't know, conventional medicine. Uh, but I think there's a lot of organizations like Omada Health, which I was the medical director for, uh, that promotes a lower carbohydrate diet and Verda Health, which promotes an, a strict low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet, uh, is, is increasingly and convincingly through data uh, coming to that point of view. All right, so enough about diets for now. Uh, just wanted to bring up some other folks and ask some other questions. Yeah, we had one question via Discord about dopamine fasting. Mm -hmm. What's an optimal amount of strategy slash news consumption? I assume that relates for healthy dopamine levels. I like being educated on the world. I read BBC, but I find myself extremely overwhelmed and extremely stressful after watching or reading the news. Yeah, so the, the last part of it, actually, I'm read verbatim. I said, I feel overwhelmed and depressed every time I read about current events. That's actually a very telltale sign to me, right? I always talk about my motto in life, and this is the same thing I encourage to all the clients that I work with in private, private practice. It's more important to be effective than it is to be right. And I would, I, would, I would extend that to news consumption. It's more important to be effective than it is to be informed. And I know that sounds a little strange to say. Like a lot of people have a very hard time with this idea of not consuming the news because they're like, I'm going to be ignorant or I'm going to be uneducated or I'm going to be uninformed if I don't read the news. And I think that's actually, and this is my unpopular contrarian opinion, I think it's falsely untrue. Uh, Jordan Peterson, in a recorded interview, said that he has not consumed the news since 1985. And, to you know, he's considered the most important intellectual in the Western Hemisphere, according to the New York Times. Right? Very smart guy. He seems very informed to me. Um, I'm sure he's a aware of world events, but he's not consuming sort of mainstream news or, or t uh, television, I believe he was talking about in particular. Right. So he, my point of view is, look, there is a benefit to being informed about what's going on in the world. You you probably do want to be aware of like this metaverse thing. Uh, if you're investing, you want to kind of be aware of what it's happening in the markets and trends. But uh, I think it really needs to be, like I said, scheduled. Uh, it needs to be limited in terms of the amount of time that you consume. And so, like I said, it's like the minimal effective dose. What's the minimal amount of time of news that you need to consume in order to feel uh, informed enough to do things that actually make an effective difference. There's no point of reading all this news and you feel like, oh, I, I feel good about myself in terms of my ego, that I know all this useless stuff that would be helpful for pub trivia. Forget about that. Read very focused news. So for in, in my like world, I read about everything that has to do with health and performance optimization. That's the news I consume. I try not to read too much about the culture wars, peace in the Middle East, it doesn't pertain to my life. It doesn't honestly make a difference in my life. Uh, it doesn't make a difference in terms of my work, my health, my performance. I focus on the stuff I consume that benefits me and benefits my clients. And so I curate essentially my news and I would encourage you to curate yours too. This person mentioned BBC, Drudge Report, Fox News, CNN, leftist Twitter stuff. I don't think you need to be educated on every single one of these things. And a lot of those uh, media outlets are particularly biased, uh, needless to say. So I think if you over drink from the fire hose, so to speak, you're gonna you're consuming too much and it's too sloppy and it's too all over the place. What I would suggest is, um, you know, there's an old saying, like the, the, the five people that you hang out with the most, um, you, you're, a, you're, a, you're an average of that, essentially. So I, I think it's the same thing with social media. The five influencers, so to speak, that you follow the closest are probably your biggest influences. And so I'd be really picky. Follow people that you admire. That's a useful rule of thumb. Like, you know, like in our sphere, you know, I always say like, I try to practice what I preach. I try to be a good masculine role model. I try to be a good health, uh, you know, role model in terms of that. And, you know, people follow me because they see I'm very in shape and do a generally a good job. Not perfect, but I'm pretty authentic even about that. And it's the same thing. Follow other people uh, besides me that, that you look up to, admire, and feel are very credible and helpful and beneficial in terms of adding value to your life. That's a useful, uh, I would say, a more useful use of sort of consumption than Fox News, let's say, or CNN. Uh, if you, whether you're left or right, doesn't matter. They're, they are incentivized to provide you with clickbait or things that obviously incite outrage and incite attention clicks, views, engagement. That's their business model. 
Our business model is fundamentally different. We obviously do care about engagement, but we don't make money off it. We don't run ads, for instance, at Maximus. We sell a separate program and essentially subsidize this content as free. We give away this content for free. We don't charge for it. Our community is free. If you can join us, by the way, at discord.maximustribe.com if you want to join our online community. And it doesn't matter if you subscribe or not. You can join our hashtag coaching channel and I'll coach you for free, right? And the reason I do that is because I want, I want people to be well in the world. And sure, if you want to jump on our protocols as well, you're welcome to do that. But whether or not you do, I'll still help you either way. And that's the benefit of essentially being subsidized by the company. We, we give away the content and coaching for free as a public service. And so there's less bias essentially in terms of what we do. We're not completely unbiased, but there's obviously less bias than a major media outlet, I would say. So I would say uh, that's kind of my point of view. Follow individuals more than institutions. I think there's a big shift from institutions to individual credibility. And you're even seeing that with the, the news outlets, even like mainstream writers for the New York Times, they'll quit, they'll start their own Substack and they bring their followers along with them because there's people, honestly, who write for the New York Times that are garbage, uh, you know, and, and for instance, the woman who wrote the dopamine, original dopamine fasting in the article in the New York Times completely wrote a hit piece uh, and later apologized for kind of the work that she did, by the way, uh, because it was total trash. Uh, and there's people who write for the New York Times who are very, very good, authentic, you know, wonderful writers. And so it's hard to judge the entire institution, even though I do call it the new, new soy times sometimes. Uh, but I think the credibility of the individual writer trumps the credibility of the, even the media outlet, um, you know, sometimes. So that's, that's my point of view is consume it in limited amounts, uh, follow people that are particularly credible and that you look up to and admire, uh, and fast from it, just limit your consumption to a reasonable degree, but you do not need to stay up to date on current events at all times. There's lots of people like Jordan Peterson, uh, that don't necessarily sort of do that. Um, anyone want to, Mona, do you have any questions? Um, hi, yes, um, this room is so amazing. Um, I joined a little late, so I don't know if you already covered this, but I had like two questions. Um, along with the dopamine fast, is it good to take like a supplement like L-tyrosine to, I don't know, just help? Or if you're already under a lot of stress and, or to take that supplement, um, and then the second part is, like, when you are trying to do the dopamine fat, how do you overcome, like, the sense of not missing out, not missing out, but kind of like, the, it's like a nice break from the routine. Like, mm -hmm. how do you kind of overcome um, being structured in a routine, like making routines exciting, I guess? Yeah, when, when you go on social media, what do you, what do you think it does for you? What's the benefit that you get, the perceived benefit that you get that gets you to do it? Uh, so I learn. Like, I use Clubhouse to kind of connect with uh, different people and learn um, social media. I have the same kind of thought process um, to follow people who I can potentially learn from. Yeah, and that's a beneficial thing. And obviously, I encourage that um, in moderation, of course, right? Um, and that's kind of one of the premises, by the way, of dopamine fasting is... Um, Complete abstinence is not realistic in the modern age, right? Telling people to not use the internet, be completely off of social media, very difficult to, to do. Uh, and it's not really realistic, um, especially if you're dealing with things like internet addiction. The consensus view amongst, amongst my colleagues in a review paper that was published is that moderation as opposed to abstinence is sort of the superior model, right? Now, obviously, with there's certain things like you know, cocaine use or drinking, you don't need alcohol or cocaine in your life. You can absolutely abstain from it for the rest of your life. Although alcohol is a little bit trickier because it is obviously in a lot of social situations. With social media, however, and especially the internet, it's, unless you're, I don't know, living a very Amish or, or kind of a, I don't know, neo-Luddite kind of life, it's very hard to abstain altogether. So it's really about sort of moderation. And then that's why I, I encourage people to be extremely picky. Because like I said, if you think about it like a drug, and that's the way I always describe it, like social media, clubhouse is a drug. Don't, <laughs> don't get me wrong, right? Then you should be really picky about what you're consuming because you know there's a bunch of like social media crypto scammers that are on here that are promoting get rich quick schemes and it's gonna fill your head with a bunch of garbage. Um, you know, I, I, I support crypto, by the way, but I think certain people are disincentivized the wrong way to promote certain things uh, versus obviously, you know, things that are educational, beneficial for your health, your well-being, 
your psychological growth and education. So, uh, you know, th that's what I would say is really critical. You know, the interesting thing is on this note, there was actually a study that was looking at sort of Facebook consumption um, and they actually had them do a dopamine fast. Uh, I believe it was for like five days, the kind of almost like a social media detox, even though I sort of hate that term. Um, they did find that um, uh, it reduced levels of cortisol from taking a break for sort of five days. Interestingly though, they also reported less like lower levels of um, well-being, interestingly, even though objectively their stress levels were lower, they almost kind of felt like a FOMO of missing out that kind of is like what you're describing, right? And my, my interpretation of that is it's not that withdrawing from social media actually lowers your well-being. I think we're honestly so hooked to it, this constant stimulation uh, and the and the social connection that we derive from it that we forget to do simple things like you don't have to go on Facebook just call pick up the phone and call your five closest friends and you'll still get the well-being benefit but we've become so awkward that we forget like we, we're not even used to like picking up the phone and doing that anymore right so it's the opportunity cost that I think you should be aware of um, so in terms of my recommendation of what to do when dopamine fasting, this is one of the things that the media totally got wrong. Like the New York Times article was arguing it's like abstaining from pleasure altogether. You're supposed to sit there like a monk and avoid all stimulation because dopamine is evil. That's not what dopamine fasting is at all. You should absolutely do things that are enjoyable. You should just abstain from things that are addictive. That's the point of dopamine fasting. So the idea is, you know, if you're if you overuse, let's say, Clubhouse or Twitter or whatever it is, is that your addiction of choice is, uh, use it in moderation. Use it in scheduled times. Use it in the ways that obviously are benefit benefit you most. But at other times, do other things that are values aligned, right? So, like I said, call the people that you love and have a meaningful conversation with them, or or do other beneficial health things. So I think the thing is, uh, like for instance, one of the things that I, I recommend in terms of a practice is I really recommend taking five to 10 minute breaks uh, at work uh, in between sort of 25 and 50 minute meetings. Uh, and I encourage people actually to do sort of a walking meditation or walking mindfulness. So you get up, you get away from the screen, you make sure you look at things that are at least 20 feet away because we're too myopically focused on our screens, gives your eyes sort of a break from that kind of a near distance focusing. And then just take in the environment around you. You pay attention to the color of the leaves, uh, you know, the texture of the sidewalk, the sound of the birds chirping. So you, you, you just let yourself pay attention non-judgmentally, almost curiously, to the sensory aspects of your environment. You just do that for five, 10 minutes, and I guarantee you it improves your well-being. In fact, there was a study that I posted, it was on my Twitter, that showed that uh, it's called forest bathing, right? Which is, you can even, by the way, do this in an urban environment. You don't need to literally go to a forest. We have an office park that we're, we're here in Santa Monica and there's plants and we just take little five, 10 minute walks around there and it lowers your cortisol levels. So that's the right, that's the exercise that I actually recommend is just take breaks from all the screens, get outside, go for a little walk, even in an urban environment. And there's, there's good research that it shows that improves subjective well-being and lowers cortisol levels. Now, to your first question about L-tyrosine. L-tyrosine is a naturally occurring amino acid. It's actually the precursor to dopamine. So I assume what you're asking about is, can you increase dopamine levels by taking L-tyrosine, and is that recommended to do? Now, L-tyrosine uh, is rate-limited essentially by enzymes in your body that convert L-tyrosine to dopamine. And so you're not gonna get as much of a dopamine uh, increase by taking L-tyrosine as you would by taking a direct dopamine agonist such as amphetamine or uh, more people commonly know it as like mixed amphetamine salts, AKA Adderall, right? Adderall has a very strong effect in terms of increasing your dopamine levels, which can obviously help your focus if you have ADHD. I mean, it really helps focus if you don't have ADHD. However, it's not generally suggested that people take it. And unfortunately, there's a bunch of these amphetamine pill mill telemedicine companies out there that are shilling you know, Adderall to whoever will pay them. Uh, it's, it's dangerous, quite frankly. Um, uh, amphetamines have a lot of side effects. They, they reduce appetite. Uh, they have an anorexic effect, essentially. That's why they were originally used as diet drugs, uh, because they blunt appetite. Um, but, you know, they override sort of your natural, the, the rate-limiting function of your own dopamine system, and they overstimulate you, which can cause anxiety, jitteriness, uh, impairs sleep. Uh, and you know, there is long-term addiction issues. Like when people withdraw off of, 
um, you know, and uh, amphetamines, uh, they do get uh, like a, a very almost depressed feeling uh, because they don't have that sort of uh, reward system kicked into overdrive. Now, tyrosine is, like I said, much milder than that. Uh, it doesn't work nowhere near as strong as Adderall, but I generally don't like the idea of messing with the dopamine system uh, pharmacologically. I think it's a very dangerous system to play with and it's, I discourage it. In fact, there are some interesting studies with uh, dopamine agonists like Pramapexol that are used in folks uh, who have Parkinson's disorder. Parkinson's disorder is a, is a disorder of a dysregulation of the dopamine system. And so they get these issues like the shaky hands. You might've seen like Michael J. Fox who has Parkinson's uh, has that kind of thing. Um, but in a small subset of people, it ironically actually causes uh, compulsions. So they, they, there's people who've in fact sued the pharmaceutical companies because they have, they become sexual addicts, they become gambling addicts, and people who have no history of like gambling before end up blowing a bunch of money in casinos from taking do dopamine agonists. Now that is a rare side effect. I would say it's in the single digit percentages of people, but it just kind of shows that like the do dopamine system is kind of, uh, you know, sensitive, I would say, and it's not something that you want to play with. So I actually don't encourage taking anything that's either a dopamine precursor like L-tyrosine or a dopamine agonist like Adderall unless it's prescribed to you by a doctor and obviously legitimately prescribed. Like I said, not you're not begging the doctor to give it to you because your friends told you it'd be good for you. But if you have legitimately diagnosed ADHD, meaning you had a full neuropsychological examination and you're basically more functional with it than without it, then sure, there's some people who should take it. But quite frankly, there's way too many students and professionals that are abusing Adderall uh, in their dopamine system when there's going to be long-term you know, negative consequences doing so. So my point of view is, look, keep your brain healthy by eating you know, good nutrients and over prevent the overstimulation of your dopamine system by doing dopamine fasting. Your dopamine system will take care of itself if you allow it proper rest and recovery, right? If you think about it, dopamine fasting is like sleep, right? It's allowing your brain, like when you, like I said, when you go outside, you walk around nature, you take in your surroundings, it's like restoring your brain in a lot of ways because it takes you away from that hyper-focus, hyper-dopaminergic state and allows your body and your brain and your eyes to heal and recover. And when you do that, your dopamine system, generally speaking, will be just fine. So I would take a much more sort of, you know, first principles approach, if you will, and let your your dopamine system sort of heal itself. The thing about dopamine fasting, and I always uh, try to dispel this notion, it's not too fast from dopamine. Dopamine is not evil. As I said, if your dopamine is too low, you have issues like Parkinson's, right? Dopamine is not the enemy. The, what we're fasting from is from dopamine-mediated addictive behaviors, right? Dopamine is, is involved in the process of addiction. And so what we're fasting from is problematic or addictive behaviors, not from dopamine. Dopamine, it's like a Goldilocks zone. You don't want it to be too high. You don't want it to be too low. You can't really measure it anyway. So don't focus on dopamine and don't try to, uh, you know, top it up, so to speak, by taking L-tyrosine or, or force stimulate it by taking a a amphetamines. Just try to practice putting your focus and attention and concentration on the right things and making sure that you have appropriate rest and recovery and the brain will take care of itself. That's kind of my point of view. Yeah, thanks. Um, I didn't know that about L-tyrosine. Like, it was that strong. Um, yeah, and Clubhouse, it was very addictive in the beginning. Now I've kind of toned it down to just Thursdays. <laughs> That's my day. But yeah. thank you. There you go. You're dopamine fasting Clubhouse on Thursdays. That's a nice way to do it. Um, excellent. All right, it is uh, 7 o'clock. Uh, that's the end of our time for Maximus Live 48. Um, if you're interested in um, continuing the conversation, you can join our community. As I mentioned, we have a Discord community. It's discord.maximustribe.com where we talk about all things health and performance optimization. Uh, we have a lot of, uh, we have a coaching squad in there. If you're interested in um, working on your health habits, diet, exercise, sleep, focus, people actually check in every single day about how they're doing and they try to keep up their streaks in terms of uh, the number of days of maintaining those behaviors. Uh, we have a lot of other channels on nutrition, fitness, uh, psychology, et cetera, that you can join as well. Um, if you're interested in maximizing your testosterone using a doctor prescribed program, you can check us out. It's uh, clubhouse.maximustribe.com, I believe is the link. That's a special link that we created for Clubhouse 
listeners in California and Florida uh, that will get you priority access to our program. So you can check us out, clubhouse.maximustribe.com if you're interested in increasing your testosterone levels through pharmacological and behavioral means. That's our king protocol. There's a ton of science behind it. We have a lot of happy uh, participants uh, who've been using it to maximize their health and performance. Uh, in the meantime, I uh, hope you have a very happy rest of your Thursday. Feel free to catch us next Thursday, 6 o'clock Pacific time, where I'd be happy to answer your questions and coach you uh, through anything health and performance related. All right, be well, everyone, and have a great rest of your week.